So we finished Acts last week. We've been working through it verse at a time since, I think, Easter last year. I want to give a bit of a summary. When you're digging into the details, sometimes you lose sight of the bigger picture. And so I want to step back and wrap up Acts today by, by looking at the overarching message. Acts 1.8 is the theme verse for the entire book. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus said that to 11 disciples, and that's where everything begins. And the whole book of Acts is the fulfillment of that promise or that prophecy, that proclamation, whatever you want to call that. Acts unfolds along those lines. And so for us, the takeaway is this idea of being a missionary. That's what Acts is about. It's about being a missionary. The two most fundamental things about you, if you've chosen to follow Jesus... You're a son or you're a daughter of God. You've been adopted into his family. You're a co-heir with Christ. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, lives within you, confirming your sonship. Second, you're a missionary. That's an identity statement. The two most, again, fundamental things about you as a follower of Jesus is you're a son or a daughter of God, and you're a missionary. You've been adopted into a family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are on mission, and they invite you to participate in the family business. And Acts is the unfolding of that. The church begins with 120 people in Jerusalem, a Jewish city, 120 Jewish men and women. Then after Pentecost, these disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they take Jesus at his word. In a matter of 30 years, the book of Acts, it's a 30-year window of history. The gospel goes from 120 men and women in Jerusalem to over 30 cities in the entire Roman world, tens of thousands of men and women have said yes to Jesus. It's easy in Acts to get caught up in the headliners. We read about Peter and Stephen and Philip and and Paul. But as you read through, you'll see there are churches that are planted in cities that those guys never go to. Antioch is the primary sending church in the book of Acts, and it was founded by people we don't know, by nameless and faceless anonymous followers of Jesus who took seriously the commands of the Lord to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to go and be witnesses. And so again, as we close the book of Acts today, that's what I want you hearing. Be a missionary, give you a few practical things. I hope they're practical from the life of Paul. Just He's the one that we know the best. We see his conversion in Acts chapter 9. He talks about his conversion a couple of times of later on in Acts. We have more data on him than we do on anyone else. So we're going to use him as our template for what does it look like to be a missionary. So first thing you see, uh, Acts nine fifteen and 16, this is Paul's commission. But the Lord said to Ananias, Ananias is a prophet. Go, this man, that's Paul. This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. First thing I want you to see when you talk about being a missionary. You talk about calling. God initiates. Always. You'll see the way Paul talks about his calling. There's some verses there up on the screen. Uh, And every time he talks about it, you can see the language that he uses. It's highlighted in yellow. It's these words that speak of God's initiative. My chosen instrument, all you've been assigned to do, chosen you, and here's what you're going to do. Be a witness. I appoint you. I'm sending you. In all of those cases, when Paul conceives of his calling, when Paul conceives of his life as a missionary, he does so understanding God's the one who started this. God's the one who began this. You know that. That's 
kind of 101. And then there's also Paul's response. God initiates and we respond. When Paul, towards the end of Acts, he's looking back over the last 10 or 12 years, and the way he speaks about that time, he speaks in terms of obedience. I was not disobedient to that call. My conscience is clear. I ran the race. And all of that implies that Paul could have done otherwise. He could have been disobedient. He could have not run his race. His conscience could convict him because he had not fulfilled his assignment or his duty. So both of those things go hand in hand. God initiates and we respond. God determines. God decides. We discover. We discern. You know that. The ditches that we can fall into. Selfish ambition and vain conceit on one side. That's superimposing my will on God's. Spiritualizing my desires and saying this is what God wants for me. When I was in seminary, I had a class and the professor stood up. There's maybe 50 or 60 folks in class. And he said, look around the room. Three out of the four people that you see in here are in here because of their ego. Three out of four people go into ministry for ego reasons. They either have a weak ego And they need people to need them. They need people to call them when they're in trouble and say, help me. They need people to pat them on the back and say, you did a good job on Sunday morning. Or they have a huge ego and they think people need to listen to them. I can run your life. If you would just listen to me, then things would go well for you. That selfish ambition and vain conceit, that type of thinking that gets in the way of God's initiative, of God's calling. That's me saying this is what I want to do and then trying to put a divine stamp on it. There's a few of you who wrestle with that. Most of you don't. Most of you fall in the other ditch, which for whatever reason is this hesitancy to respond. When we first started Stonebridge, we did these things we call them ministry greenhouses to help people kind of hear the Lord and figure out what he was saying to them and, and move out into their calling. We did this series of them, and I think it was the third one. I'm, we were th- our, That used to be the front of our building. We used to worship this way, so that's why I'm looking that way. And there were 50 people at this last thing that we did. And at the end, we said, we want to pray, so let's break into two groups. On the left, everyone who says, I'm really unclear. I don't know what, in our language, I don't know what my deal is. I don't know what God's calling me to do. And then on the right, everyone who knows, but you're not actively engaging. Two people came to the left. Two people said, I don't know. Forty-eight people said, I know, but I'm not actively engaged. I I spent a year, year and a half of this church saying, well, people, the issue is people haven't heard the Lord. That's rarely is that the issue, that people don't have a sense of calling. That may be the case for you, but that's usually not so once we begin to ask the Lord. He's faithful to reveal. For most of us, the issue is a lack of responsiveness. We feel unworthy. We don't have time. We don't feel equipped. We don't know where to begin. Rarely is it just flat stubbornness, flat, just kind of this outright rebellious resistance. It's usually rooted in some sense of inadequacy that keeps us from engaging our calling. And I don't want you to fall into that trap. God initiates, we respond. How do you stay on the road? How do you avoid those ditches? One thing you can do is just remind yourself of your identity. Remind yourself that you're a son or daughter of God. And as important, remind yourself that you're a missionary. We've got some folks in Costa Rica and some folks in Nicaragua this week. Super easy for them to remember that they're missionaries this week. They don't speak the language. 
They're not around their families. They're not in their regular jobs. It's hot. All, all of these things that speak to them. Their whole day is wrapped around Bible school or evangelism or doing service projects. This week for them, it's super easy to say, I'm a missionary. What's going to be tricky for them is next Monday when they go back to work and they go back to school and they do know the language and they do know the culture and they do have other responsibilities and they're back in their homes and their regular routines. It's difficult in those circumstances to remember who you are. You're a missionary. For many of us, that's how we struggle living in Marietta and Cobb County. We're not reminded of the fact that we're missionaries because we look like everyone else and we live like most other people. And so it's easy to lose sight of that fundamental identity and often to fall into this lack of responsiveness toward the Lord. So I want to encourage you, remember who you are. Remind yourself regularly who you are. That's foundational. And then all of the other roles that you play, husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, employer, employee, whatever else you're doing, look at through the lenses of being a son or a daughter of God and being a missionary. Let those be the glasses that you wear through which you see the rest of your life, your roles and your responsibilities. Second thing you see from Paul, he began to obey quickly. He started where he was, verse 20, 19. Paul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, that's the key phrase for us, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul was headed to Damascus. It's a town about 120 miles from Jerusalem. He was headed there to round up Christians so he could persecute them on the way. Jesus speaks to him from heaven. He sees the bright light. He's convicted of his sin. He repents and begins to follow Jesus. After three days of being blind, Ananias comes to him and says, here's the deal. Here's what you're going to do. This is the word of God to you. You're going to preach the name of Jesus among Jews and Gentiles and to their kings, and you're going to suffer for his name. Paul stays in Damascus, that's where he is, and at once he begins to preach in the synagogue. He goes to the Jews. You're going to be a witness to the Jews and to Gentiles, and Paul says, all right, I'm in. I'm going to start with the Jews here where I am. God doesn't give suggestions. When he speaks to us, he expects us to obey. Many of you parents have said to your kids, slow obedience is disobedience. And the same thing is true with the Lord. He expects us to respond quickly when he speaks to us. I was talking to a couple a few months ago, and they had a pretty clear sense of what God was calling them to. They each kind of independently had heard something from the Lord, and it really lined up. And they were struggling, though, to engage. And I said, what's holding you back? And they said, we have three children. And I said, do you, do you think God knew that when he told you these? Did you think he knew? Of course he knew. Of course he did. He wasn't surprised. When God speaks, he expects a response to us, and he knows. Like, he knows how busy you are. He knows about your kids. He knows about your financial situation. He knows how stressed. He knows all of that. And, he's, and yet, he's looking for a response. Again, God doesn't, he doesn't suggest. He, he commands. And when he speaks to us, he's looking for a response from us. We don't be, want to be like the guys we talked about last week at the end of Acts where Paul is speaking about the Jews and says, you have ears, but you can't hear, and eyes, but you can't see, and a heart, but you can't respond. We don't want to be that. We want to be people who respond and who obey quickly. And having said that, we plant mustard seeds. We don't plant mustard trees. You plant seeds, not trees. 
you've ever worked in a garden, you know how easy it is to plant seeds. It doesn't take anything. Scratch up a little dirt, throw them down, put the dirt back on top and water. That's it. Some germinate, some don't. If you've ever planted a tree, that's a whole lot more work. It's a lot more invasive. It's a lot harder. A lot of times you need heavy equipment. And if it doesn't, if that tree doesn't take root, you're out a lot. You're out a lot of time and you're out a lot of money. Seeds are easy. Trees are not. Kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. So I would say start where you are and start small where you are. Plant seeds. You don't have to plant trees. If you like the a business metaphor, Jim Collins in his book Built to Last talks about shooting bullets versus shooting cannonballs. Bullets, low cost, low risk, low distraction. It's the same concept of shooting of, of planting seeds versus planting trees. Zechariah, it's a book that you maybe have never looked at. He's a prophet, and he's speaking to this king named Zerubbabel, who's supposed to rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel's questioning whether he's the right guy. And Zechariah 4.6, it's the most famous verse in Zechariah. It's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. A few verses down, there's this gem of a statement in Zechariah 4.10. Who despises the day of small beginnings? Who does that? We all do that, most of us. We despise the day of small beginnings. God doesn't. God says, who despises the day of small beginnings because it's not me? And it's not by your might, and it's not by your power. It's by the Spirit of the Lord Almighty that this temple, that your calling, will be lived out. Those things go hand in hand. God accomplishes his work, and he almost always starts small. So yes, begin where you are, but begin by planting mustard seeds, little things, small steps. If they work, great. If they don't, you're not out a whole lot. You're not out a lot of time. You're not out a lot of money. You're not out a lot of pain. You're just trying, you're trying things on. Easier to steer a moving ship. And so you just start moving in obedience, taking small steps, allowing the Lord to guide and direct you as he will. Now, having said that, Sometimes, as you begin to engage, God's going to pull you out and kind of set you over here for a while. In Galatians 1, Paul is talking about the days and the weeks after his conversion. And he says this, when God who set me apart called me, he revealed his son to me, there's his calling that I might preach among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles, but I went into Arabia. So Arabia is a region that borders Damascus. And some people say, well, Paul went there. He was obeying quickly. That's where there were Gentiles in Arabia. So just like he went to the synagogue in Damascus, he went to Arabia to engage with Gentiles. God said, you're going to be a witness to Jews and to Gentiles. And that's what he was doing. That very well may be. I'm in the camp that says Paul actually went into the wilderness for a few years. It's three years that he was there in Arabia. And we don't know what he was done. There's silent years. We don't know anything about what Paul was doing During those three years, I think that he was in the wilderness. He had spent a good portion of his adult life as a Pharisee believing Jesus was a heretic, Jesus was a blasphemer, people who followed him needed to be persecuted. He'd been convicted on the Damascus Road that he was wrong, but there was some wiring that needed to be reworked in his heart and his mind. There were some things from the Old Testament he needed to go back and look at in light of this new information that Jesus is the Messiah. And I think Paul, God was pulling Paul into the wilderness or the desert 
whatever you want to say, the sidelines, however you want to frame that, kind of pulling him off the stage for a little bit so that he could do work in his heart. Nobody engages long-term successfully in their calling without some period in the wilderness or the desert. That have, that's, re, that's universal. Oftentimes, that preparation comes after your calling, after you get some sense of what the Lord is leading you to, after he says, here's what it looks like for you to be a missionary. We can have this initial excitement, and then we can get frustrated because doors aren't opening or things aren't happening, and we're, we're feeling left out, or, and we can get angry at God, like, why, why are you doing this? I'm trying to be obedient, and I'm banging my head against a wall. It very well could be that God is kind of setting you over here. And when he takes you into that desert or that wilderness, there's two things he's trying to do. One is cultivate your character. Super important. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. When you hear that word proud, don't think of arrogant. That's a small part of it. Think of independent. God opposes those who live independently of him. If you're living independent of God, then you can't receive his grace. If you're not living in his grace, you can't be a missionary fruitfully over time. You're left to your own devices. All you can do is what you can do in your own strength, which isn't any good for anybody. He gives grace to the humble, to those who recognize their need, to those who live dependently upon him. God opposes the proud. He opposes the independent. He gives grace to the humble, to the dependent. And often that's the fundamental thing he's trying to work in your character during that time in the desert or during that time in the wilderness. There may for sure be some other things he wants to work, but that's usually primary. It's about trust. Are you going to live trusting me? Are you going to live dependent upon me? Are you going to depend on your own gifts, your own strength, your own resources? God's also developing skills. Just because God has spoken something to you doesn't mean that thing is bound to succeed. God works through natural means often. I talked to a couple this week who feel called to Saudi Arabia So they're looking to move there. If they don't learn Arabic, they're not going to be fruitful. It doesn't matter how legitimate their call is. If they don't learn learn Arabic, they're not going to be able to engage with anybody. It's going to limit their effectiveness in ministry. There are skills that you have to develop. If you look back, particularly in the Old Testament, you can see this wilderness time where people's characters cultivated and their skills are developed. Think of Joseph. He's the son of a shepherd. He has a dream that his older brothers, all of his brothers actually bow down to him and his mother and his father. And he foolishly goes and tells them, you don't do that if you're the younger brother. And so they get angry and they get jealous and they sell him into slavery. And he winds up in Potiphar's house and then jail. And then eventually he does wind up being the second in command of the Egyptian empire, the biggest empire of the day. A shepherd, a Hebrew shepherd doesn't know how to run an Egyptian empire. You can't get these skills here. So Joseph has a 17-year wilderness or desert period where I'm certain at times he was frustrated and felt forgotten. You see his character maturing, that brashness, that arrogance. it's, It's worked out of him. You see his interactions with his brothers when he's in Egypt towards the end of Genesis, very different from his interactions with them. When he's still at home as a teenager. You can also see skills developed. He learns how to run a house. Potiphar's house. He's learning those administrative skills. Then he's moved into a jail. He's unjustly accused of rape. And he's put in jail. And and in there he learns more administrative skills. The Bible says that Potiphar didn't worry about anything that Joseph managed. 
And then it says the chief warden didn't worry about anything that Joseph managed. He learned how to lead. He learned how to administrate. So that, and he learned Egyptian. So that when he was called upon to interpret a dream for Pharaoh, he could actually communicate to Pharaoh. And then he's given this role leading the entire how to do that. Because he's run a jail. And he's run his house. He was developing skills. His, cult, his character was being cultivated. David, anointed as a teenager, you're going to be the king. Then 10 years on the run from crazy King Saul, who thinks he's traitorous. And so David, during that time, he's also he's a shepherd. He knows how to take care of sheep. He doesn't know how to lead people. And so this group is gathered to him. How about this for your initial leadership experience? 400 people gather around David, and they're described as those who are in debt, in distress, and discontented. That's who he gets. That's not the cream of the crop. If you can lead that group, then you probably can lead any group. That's how David learns the skills of leadership, both military and political. It's while he's in the wilderness, literally while he's in the wilderness, on the run for his, running for his life from Saul. He learns how to lead this group of men, and so then he's prepared when he takes over to be king. Moses, 40 years on the backside of the desert before God calls him back to lead Israel. You can see, again, throughout the Old Testament in particular, you see this period, this wilderness, this desert time. You see Jesus' life, 40 days before he begins his public ministry. I don't want you to miss that. Just like we don't want to despise the day of small beginnings, you don't want to despise the season of your preparation. If you find yourself there, if you feel like that's where you are, the best thing you can do is say, God, what are you doing? Like, help, I, I want to cooperate. I'm going to stop bucking you on this. What are you trying to work into my heart, character-wise? What skills do I need to acquire? Like, br- bring it. Whatever I've got to do to cooperate, I'm in. And that speeds that process up for you. Third thing you see with Paul in terms of calling, being a missionary, be ready to suffer. Everybody loves that one. 916, show this guy how much he must suffer for me. And when Paul is looking back over his life as a missionary, he lists some of the ways that he suffered. That's up there in those two white boxes. Paul's not suffering, he's not being punished because he persecuted the church before he became a Christian. Paul is suffering in obedience to the Lord. He's taking the gospel to places where the gospel's never been proclaimed. And so to the Jews, they're angry. They see him as a heretic, as a blasphemer. The same way he used to see Christians, that's how Jews are seeing him. They don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe that people can put their, that he's the son of God and that the kingdom of God has come through him. So they get angry when Paul does, proclaims that. And they get even angrier when people believe him. And so they persecute him. The Gentiles think Paul's a fool. And so they run him out of town as well. But because of his foolishness and when his foolishness takes root in their cities. And people begin to live their life differently. We saw that in Ephesus. People spent their money different because they were following Paul's message that Jesus is the Messiah. So they quit buying idols. He's got these little trinkets to Artemis. They quit doing that. Paul's, and that's not even counting the enemy. Steals and kills and destroys it. Every time Paul plants a church, he's taken ground. He's taken territory back from the devil. He's, he's persecuted. He suffers. He doesn't necessarily go looking for it. It just is part of the deal. As you obey your calling, as you live as a missionary, you're going to suffer as well. That's relative. You stay here, you're, you're not going to be persecuted, most likely. It's not going to happen. 
And you may, and what you would consider suffering, it, it may not seem like that big a deal, but it, personally it is. It may, it may cost you money, either because what you're engaging in requires you to write a check or an employee who's going to get promoted. I, I don't know. It, it's definitely going to cost you time, time with your family, time you could do other things, time that you could be sleeping because you're engaging, you're praying, you're doing ministry costs you emotionally you invest in people you invest in in a cause maybe and things don't work out we live in a fallen world we have an enemy people make bad choices it can be devastating read through paul's letters towards the end of most of them you can read you can see the heartache in him people who he's invested in people who've been his partners are betraying him there are times where he feels all alone and he is all alone there's he was so fruitful in so many ways and his life was very difficult he suffered greatly in obedience to the Lord. And again, that's not, you don't need to go looking for that. It'll find you. And it's not, it's, ultimately, it's neither here nor there. It's just a reality. If you're going to live long as a missionary, the level of intentionality that that requires, it's going to cost you something. It's just going to cost you. It's a long-term commitment, and it costs you over time. It's not a sprint. It, it, it's a marathon, and it will it will require something of you. Paul talks about his own life, and he says, I poured myself out like a drink offering. And that's what God's looking for. Who's willing to pour themselves out like a drink offering? And drink offerings are poured all the way out. It's not just a little bit. You dump the whole thing. And that's what he's looking for from us, not just us giving away the good things we've received, but actually giving our lives away, whatever that may look like. So, again, that's not to scare. That's not to romanticize suffering. That's just an element, and I want you to be aware some people, when they experience that level of resistance or suffering, the assumption is, well, I'm not in the will of God. And often there's nothing further from the truth at all. Oftentimes, suffering is an indication that you're walking the right road, that you are engaging where God would have you engage. And you can see that from the life of Paul. Last thing, don't focus on the results because they will surprise you. You'll be surprised at what the Lord does. Rarely does God show us the end from the beginning. That's his prerogative as God. Even when you look, particularly in the Old Testament, some guys who saw the end from the beginning, they never saw how to get there. So Joseph saw his family bowing down before him. One, he didn't know what that mean, meant. And two, he had no idea how to get from A to B. And he definitely didn't conceive that it would mean being sold into slavery, uh, being falsely accused of rape, being thrown in jail and forgotten about. He didn't see that. David's anointed as king. He never conceived that that would require 10 years of him running for his life in the desert. Rarely do we see the end from the beginning, but even if you have a glimpse of the end, God's not going to necessarily show you every step along the way. If he did, then you wouldn't have to trust him, and that's what he's looking for more than anything else. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So that's what he's looking for, but our tendency is to focus on results. In the kingdom, obedience is success. You focus on your obedience, and you leave the results up to him. When we first started Stonebridge about 10 years ago, and at that point we had 30 adults and 17 kids, and we were small, super small. And this was that we had from this brick wall to that glass door. That was all we had. And we had So this was a sanctuary. It was cut kind of a, about in half, and we had three children's rooms and an office and two bathrooms, and that was it. It was me, and Penny worked a few hours a week, and we had some volunteers, and I heard that a guy was coming to plant on the square, and he had 400 people 
and he was going to the Strand, and he was backed by a mega church in Cobb County, and I was, I'm going to have to go find something else to do. And so I called this guy and said, do you want to meet? And he said, yeah, and we met at the Applebee's on Dallas Highway, and I was dressed like this, and he came in, and he wasn't. He was slick. He looked good. And he had an executive pastor with him. An executive pastor is like a guy that runs the church. We did, it took me five minutes to run the church at that point. That's all it took. There, was like, there were three checks a week, and I could count them really fast. The phone rang once a month. It, it wasn't that hard. I didn't need anybody to run the church. And we met, and he had this slick brochure, and he said, here's our plan for assimilating people. And it was this baseball diamond, and here's what you do at first base and second base and all this stuff. And he said, what's your plan? I said, I'm just happy when people show up. I don't, we don't have a plan. And he said, where do you want to be in five years? And I said, in existence. That's all I'm, that's it. I want to be employed. And so, you know, you ask the question back because that's what you do. And I said, where do you want to be in five years? And he already had this piece of property in West Cobb. And we're going to be there. We're going to have this building and it's going to be great. He wound up not coming to the Strand. And there was, they didn't start the way that they thought. He didn't have 400 people. He didn't start the Strand. But they had a strong start. And he and I met maybe one, uh, two, three times a month, a year. For the first four or five years of our existence, I really enjoyed the guy. I enjoyed being with him, and I would meet with him. And the first time he looked kind of that business, kind of the professional thing, the nice pants and the loafers and the shirt, and it was iron. And the next time I met him, he looked like he'd just kind of come off the beach. He had a hole in his jeans, and he was wearing a Hawaiian shirt untucked, and he was wearing these flip-flop sandals. And then the next time I saw him, he looked like he was going to the country club, he's wearing khakis, and he's wearing a golf shirt, and it was every time, I, it was a different thing, all the time, and for him, they, they actually wound up closing their doors after about four years, and I, I, they didn't need, they had about 100 people, and the average church in America has 75, so organizationally, they were fine, but for him, it was never what he wanted it to be. You need to define success, be explicit about your definition of success, because however you're defining success, that becomes the idol that you'll be tempted to worship. He'd come from a large church before he moved to Georgia. In his mind, that's what he was working back to. I need to get back to 2,000 people. I need to get back to a building. And anything other than that's a failure. He couldn't see as good a heart as he had. He couldn't see what God was doing in his community because it didn't line up with his understanding of success. And even more devastating was he wasn't willing to say, this is my definition of success. Until he was so far down the road, it was hard for him to pull back up. So he changed his clothes and he changed his preaching. He changed everything, trying to get to this ideal and give people. What's success for me in this role? And the same thing is true for you. How are you defining success as a mom or a dad or a husband or a Wife, How are you stepping back and thinking about your life as a whole? When God says, when Paul looks back and he can say, my conscience is clear. When Paul can look back and say, I've completed the race. What does that look like for you? When you think about looking back over your life, whenever, whenever you're done, whatever point that is, when you're looking back, how will you know that you've run the race? Will it be based on your bank account? Will it be based on the health of your children? Will it be based on the legacy that you leave with your business? Like, what, what is it? Can you be explicit about that? If you want to be rich, can you just say that before the Lord? God, I want to be rich. And that's how I measure. If you want to be famous, can you just say that? 
if it's something with your children, can you just be explicit until you're willing to name that idol, which is what it ultimately becomes, it will have power over you. And once you name it, then you can decide before the Lord, is this legit? Is this what you have? And most of you, they're not bad things or good things. They just may not be ultimate things. If you're married, you bring it before your spouse so y'all aren't pulling in opposite directions where she's defining success one way and you're defining it another way. That creates strife in your home. Honey, this is what it is for me. I'll know our family is successful when. And then take those things before the Lord and say, is this okay? This is how we're defining success. Is that an idol? Or is that vision from you? Be willing to allow him to shape and mold that. If you don't, that is the idol that will tempt you to worship it. You just need to say it. Don't focus on results. Obedience is success. And you need to be explicit about how you're defining success. And bring that thing before the Lord. And allow him to shape it. We're going to close with communion. We take communion every week during Lent. We've been looking at some of the benefits of the cross from Psalm 103. Psalm 103.6 says this. Uh, God works justice and righteousness for all the oppressed. Uh, and when John is talking about the life of Jesus, he says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. You can see those things as maybe two different ways of saying the same thing. Working righteousness for the uh, justice and righteousness, ju- justice and righteousness for the oppressed. That's a positive. Destroying the works of the devil. That's a negative. But you can see them as maybe two sides of the same coin. For some of you to be a missionary, that's who you're called to. You're called to the oppressed. You're called to work justice and righteousness. For those who are overlooked or those who are stepped on, it's your thing. If that's your thing, we want to invite you to pray this morning. We've set up some chairs here that are going to serve as a little makeshift altar. And after you take communion, if that's part of your deal, if that's part of what it is for you to live like a missionary, if I say destroy the works of the devil and there are things that you're thinking of that need to be destroyed, we want you to kneel here. And pray, and somebody's going to put a hand on your back. They're not going to talk to you, and you don't need to talk to them. But they're going to put a hand on, on your back and just pray for God to empower you in that arena. For the rest of us, all of it, you're somewhere on that journey of being a missionary. You may say, at this point, I haven't even been adopted into the family of God. Well, that's step one. Is that something that you're interested in this morning? You want to explore what it means to become a child of God. If so, I would say let this communion for you represent the extent of God's love for you. If he did not withhold even his own son, he's not going to withhold any other good thing from you. And so maybe for you, you you may feel to come forward and in faith say, God, if, if you're real, if you desire a relationship with me, would you speak to me in a way that I could understand? And the only thing, your response can just be yes. There's no magic formula. There's no special words that you have to say. For those of you who have said yes, you've been adopted into his family, you're a son or a daughter, you're also a missionary. Are you living that way? Don't hear that as guilt. Are you living that way? Would you say you're one of the two who's not quite sure? Maybe you need to ask the Lord for clarity. Are you the 48 who knows but you're not actively engaging? So maybe some of those things Bo was talking about. God, are there things that are keeping me from running fast? Some things that are holding me back that I need to release. And most likely they're good things. Again, they're not... They're not bad.
Maybe you've been hurt. You have suffered, and it's caused you to pull back, and you need to re-up with the Lord. Maybe there's an idol you're chasing. You need to be honest with God about what you want out of life and, and put it before him and say, is this okay? Is this desire fine? Is this goal okay with you? And if you can do that as a child, humble, dependent, God, I'm coming. This is what I want. But I'm willing to say, what, what, what do you want for me? And then if you're even willing to yield that to him and say, ultimately, I'm going to pick you over me. I'm going to pick your definition of success over mine. If you can get to that place, then you're, then you're free. Otherwise, you, you are going to remain, this sounds bad, but you are going to remain chained to that idol. And they're terrible taskmasters. So as you think about communion, again, let this represent all that God has done for you. And so if he's done all of this for us, how much more will he speak to us and provide clarity? How much more will he empower us to be missionaries? How much more can we trust him? to want what's good and right and best for our lives? How much more can we say he'll give us joy or healing or whatever those things are that cause us to pull back? The way you'll take communion, you'll come forward a row at a time, break off a piece of bread, dip it in juice. If you're not comfortable taking communion, I would encourage you to come forward anyway just so people don't have to step over you, but you can just make a loop right back to your chair. You don't have to take communion if you're not uh, in a spot to do that, if you're not comfortable doing that. We'll have gluten-free communion here on the edge of this um, table, and you can take that if you need. And again, for those of you who are saying righteousness and justice for the oppressed, destroying the works of the devil, that is my thing. Would you please kneel uh, and let some folks uh, pray over you about that? Is that good? Perfect. If you're helping with communion, if you come forward. And those of you who are praying for people, if you come forward as well. Everybody else can pray with me. Holy Spirit, come. I just pray simply that, that you would come and that you would uh, lead each one of us. I pray that you would make real in each one of our hearts the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. We're so thankful for his obedience and the way uh, his obedience ripples out in so many ways into our life. And so we want, again, we just want to receive from you this morning. So you speak and you move however uh, you desire in the lives of every man and woman in this room. Amen.